latest um, because Phil and his team need to head back to Bedford. So I'd love you to be here tonight as well for that. Um, We are in a series in Psalms over the course of the next few weeks. So just to give you a little bit of a brief overview of this. So my friend Dave from uh, Granada in Spain was with us last week and he started this series off, but I forgot to intro it for him. And so what's happening is over the summer season, and so until about the 10th of September, whoever's preaching has been invited just to pick a psalm to preach from. And so you're going to get different messages from different psalms, um, hopefully just charting different seasons in life, really. Um, And so today I'm going to be in Psalm 16. And um, if you want to follow my notes, some of you have found this helpful when I've done this before. I'm all about the QR codes at the moment. They are great, aren't they? I might just get one on my T-shirt for different things. You can just scan it. But if you want to follow my notes, you can do. Um, That's there today. So we are continuing our Psalm series. I'm speaking from Psalm 16. Um, And I love the Psalms. So November last year, a a friend of mine uh, said to me that um, I was talking to him about prayer And I said, how do you pray? And he says, well, I pray through five psalms a day. And I said, I could do that. So I started doing it. It's really easy to do if you want to do that. You start with Psalm 1, then you add on 30. So you do Psalm 1. So on the first day, you'd pray pray through Psalm 1, Psalm 31, Psalm 61, Psalm 91, Psalm 121. You've done five. And then the next day, you do 2, 32, so on and so forth. So you can do that every day. Anyway, I did this for like six months, and then I got a little bit bored And so I tried to do something else, but realized after a few weeks that I was really missing out on reading through the Psalms. And so I've gone back to it again as my daily pattern of prayer, not pattern. The Psalms, I've learned, are just a great way to connect with God. No matter what season I've been walking in in the last few months, I found the Psalms uh, a great way of being able to connect with God. And um, reading them over, as I have been, you start to notice some things, right? So let me give you like a really geeky one. So, for example, when you, get to date, when you get to Psalm 40, it's on the same day as you read Psalm 70, you'll find that Psalm 40 is actually in Psalm 70. It's really weird. And you wouldn't notice that unless you read them all a few times. So you notice things like that. But you also notice some other things as well. So one of the things that I've noticed is that there are more Psalms written when the writer of that Psalm is in a difficult season than when the writer of that Psalm is in a good season. There are more psalms written when people are going through a difficult time in their life than a good time in their life. And in our weekly uh, prayer meetings this week, so we have a, a weekly meeting on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings. We're actually going to pause that for August, so uh, look out for September. We'd love for you to join us for that. But anyway, on Tuesday this week in our Zoom prayer meeting, Eddie, who uh, normally prays with us, I don't think Eddie, you're here at the moment? No? Then no, he'll probably be at the second meeting. Um, said something along the lines of this, I'm paraphrasing him, God doesn't always guarantee our lives will be easy, but he guarantees he'll be with us. I thought, what a great thing to say. He got a hearty amen from me at the time. Anyway, it got me thinking, I'd already set, I'd already felt God telling me to preach from this psalm, so I was thinking, God, what do you want me to say from it? And then this week, Jude, my son, son, he's six, has really got into listening to Matt Redman as he goes to sleep at night, bless him. And he started to listen to this song, Oh No, You Never Let Go. It's become his favourite song. It's not my favourite song, okay? Um, But it is Jude's. And so he had it on repeat for quite a few nights. And and in in this psalm, there is a quote from Psalm 23, and it it says this. I'm not going to sing it to you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's also a song by Coolio I could rap it to you as well. Um, Your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back, I know you're near. So directly from the Bible, if you were going to read this from the Bible, it actually reads like this. So this is Psalm 23. Most of us will know this psalm. It starts with, the Lord is my shepherd. So Psalm 23, verse 3 says this. He guides me along the right paths 
for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. So God guides us in the right paths. That's what this psalm says. But just think about it for a minute. He guides you in the right paths for his name's sake. Yet those right paths lead through dark valleys. Never really thought about that before. So God guides you in the right paths for his name's sake. But as he guides you, you end up in dark valleys. There is always a danger, though, that as we get into those valleys that we get guided into in life, because God doesn't promise us that life's going to be easy. He promises he's going to be with us. But there's a problem that as we walk through those dark valley seasons, what can end up happening is we can actually start to fear, God, are you with me or not? And for some of us, it's not just like you hit a valley season every now and again. It feels like your whole life is a valley. It feels like everything seems dark all the time. I, I was chatting to somebody recently, and they just said to me, my whole life has been difficult. You don't understand how difficult my whole life has been. And I said, no, I don't. I, 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 can, understand, I can understand that your whole life has been difficult. I see that in you. So for some of us, we don't just have difficult seasons. Our whole life feels like a dark valley. And the longer we find ourselves in a dark valley, we can ask the question, God, where are you? God, are you here with me? You, you told me you love me, but I just don't feel like it right now. St. John of the Cross called that the dark night of the soul. You can go through a season in life where it just feels like God is just not there with you. And the danger is, and I've seen this with Christian friends who have walked away from the faith, is that as you hit a dark valley in your life, the danger is, is if, you, if you don't start realizing that God is with you, you end up letting go of God in the darkness, and then you can't find him again. See, God doesn't promise there'll be no darkness. God actually leads us into dark seasons. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and this is just like where you're at today. Maybe coming to church today for you was like, oh, I do not want to go, but I just feel like I ought to go today. Well, then this is for you. But maybe you're here this morning, and there's just this sort of feeling of darkness. Maybe you're watching it at home today because you didn't want to come here. Or maybe you're not even watching it live, but you're watching this preach later on in the week. Maybe you're not here today because you feel like this at the moment. Fear is growing in you because you're in a dark season. Maybe you're like, one of this is the, the most dark psalm in all of scripture. It's Psalm 88, and it doesn't end well. Um, it's written by one of the sons of Korah, and he says this, I'm overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe you don't feel like sunshine and rainbows and lollipops and all that stuff. You just feel like you're in a dark place. Well, I, I, I do think that Jesus wants to come and meet you today. And I think he wants to meet you as we read Psalm 16 together. So we're just going to look at that. And so um, I'll read it through to you. It'll come up on the screen. So it starts like this. A miktam of David. We don't really know what a miktam is. Probably a type of song. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say to the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer much more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods. A libation is a drink offering given to a, a god, okay? Or take their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my cup and my portion. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. 
Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at, my, even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So at first glance, when we're reading this psalm, it doesn't feel like it's a dark valley. It feels like it's a pretty good place. Until you actually just think about that first verse where he says this, Keep me safe, my gods, for in you I take refuge. David is not walking on a mountaintop when he writes this psalm. He's actually walking in a dark, difficult place. He's saying, God, I need you to keep me safe because I don't feel safe. I feel insecure. I don't feel like everything's going well for me. You know, there are plenty of psalms where we actually know when David wrote them. So, for example, Psalm 18, was we, we think it was written at the time when David was um, facing this trial at a place called Ziklag. And, in, 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 and that's in 1 Samuel 30. And there what happens is there's a verse in that scripture and it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. So what we know about David is, is that times in his life, when he got to these trial-like seasons, he chose to strengthen himself in God's. And this is what we see him doing here in this psalm. Now, his attitude to his circumstance doesn't solve the problems that he's got. This psalm doesn't solve his problem. But what it does is it demonstrates a certain posture that he adopts as he walks through a difficult season in life. And I think it's a posture that we can learn from. And so the posture that he adopts looks something like this. He, he makes God the, the sole object of his worship. He keeps his eyes fixed on God. And he reminds himself of his inheritance in God. So, first of all, he... He, he turns to worship. He says to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from you, I've got nothing. In the midst of David's season, he reaffirms his faith in God. And he does this by comparing Yahweh, that's God, to the gods of the other nations around him. And to David, the, the gods of the other nations are detestable in the same way that they are detestable to Yahweh. You'll see this elsewhere if you want to read other scriptures. You'll see that that the gods of the nations are detestable in the eyes of the true and living God. You read Ezekiel, you'll see that all the time. Look at the language that David uses in verse 4. He says, he won't utter the name of other gods. That's how much he despises them. He chooses to only worship G Yahweh alone. Jesus, he does in a sort of roundabout way. So he chooses to worship Yahweh alone. Now, in the ancient Near East, which is where David lived, and in the land of Canaan, there were many gods there have been like archaeological digs where they have found hundreds of household gods, little statues carved to different gods in different homes that they've dug up. And so there was the, the prevailing kind of culture that David lived in, and that you see this through the, 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 the Chronicles and Kings books in the Bible as God's people kept worshipping other gods, that the prevailing culture wasn't one of monotheism, as in it's gods, but it was one of polytheism, as in there are many gods. There are many gods, like Hinduism today, there are many gods in Hinduism. So if you were a polytheist and you lived in Canaan at the time, you might worship Baal, the god of rain. If your crops were dry and there was, there was a drought, you would go to worship Baal. Or if you were um, infertile, maybe your crops were infertile or maybe you were infertile, you couldn't have children, you would pray to the goddess Asherah and she would apparently grant you fertility. Or you might go to the god of Molech, who was the god of fire. 
And you might make an offering to Molech. Now, the offering that you made to Molech was to, to go and sacrifice your children to him. So there were these gods, but these gods weren't like our God. They were transactional gods. They were the gods of transaction. You made offerings to these gods to bless your life and give you what you wanted in order to get you out of the trial that you faced. So your life was difficult. You would go to the God, you'd make an offering to them, and hopefully then your life would be better as a result. But David doesn't do that. David chooses to worship God alone. Not because of something that God could do for David, but because God is good. But because God is worthy of David's worship. So in the midst of David's circumstance, God is worthy of David's worship, just irregardless of anything else. David just says, I'm going to worship you. Now, we don't have Molech and Asherah and Baal and all the other names of different gods in the Bible, but we do have functional idols in our lives today. Money, career, sex, even sexual identity have become functional idols for us in our culture. Our culture teaches us that if we serve those gods, our lives will be better and they will get us out of the dark season that we face. So one of the solutions in our culture, if you are going for a difficult season, maybe you just need to get more money. If you're going for a difficult season, maybe you just need to have sex. This is how our culture works. It teaches us that in order to be able to be happier, we just need a new transaction. Perhaps you've turned to one of those and to get you out of the dark valley season that you currently find yourself in, and it is just not doing what you hoped it was going to do. You see, all of these things, though, they don't actually work out well for us. What they do is they just turn our hearts away from the true and living God and away to false idols. So David chooses to place his faith in the living God in the season that he's in. Now, David, maybe most significantly of all, David could have turned to the God of self. Because when you think about David... He was, like, incredibly rich. If you were to take what he earned and what he had and you trans translated it into day's money in the UK, it's something like over £150 billion. The guy was absolutely minted. He's the sort of person you want to go out for a meal with, right? I hope you're picking up the cheque, David, yeah? But it wasn't just that he was rich. He had power and influence. He, he, he was the head of a state. You know, he wasn't just Elon Musk, he was King Charles as well. He had influence, he had power, he had success. You know, if, if anybody was going to say, actually, I'm just going to trust in myself here, it would be David. But David doesn't say this. He says, God, apart from you, I've got no good thing. I mean, think about your own life. How much do you spend time thinking, if I just had a thousand more pounds, my life would be better. If I just had that relationship, my life would be better. If I just had that promotion at work, my life would be better. David says, apart from you, God, I have no good thing. So when faced with difficult seasons like David, you and I have got an, actually, we've got an invitation. Rather than to ask for something from God, we've just got an invitation to come and worship God. Jesus actually invites us to do this. He says this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So when you're in a difficult season... Rather than going to God with maybe your petitions and your requests, he just invites you to come and sit at his feet and worship him. And when we spend time with Jesus, our problems don't disappear, but they start to find their place in the grand scheme of things. There was this awful song we used to sing years and years ago. Most of you won't remember it. I remember it when I was growing up. In his, in his, and in his presence, our problems disappear. It's absolute rubbish. Our problems don't disappear in God's presence. Our problems find their place. You know, when we, when we come to God in worship, 
our problems start to find their place. When we say to him, Jesus, I worship you, what we're doing is we're placing our trust back in him and not in something else in us. And what that happens is, is that it takes, it takes our trust away from things that don't compare to him. Weary or well, Jesus invites you to come and sit at his feet and worship him. And as you do that, what happens is, is that you dethrone things in your heart that aren't him and you start to place him back on the throne in your heart of your life. And, and as you do that, as you worship him, the idols start to be removed and you start to realize, oh, you are the true and living God. In the words of David, what we're doing is we worship him. We're making him our portion and our cup. We're saying, I don't need anything else. I just need you. So that's the first thing that David does. And it's the first thing that we can do when we hit a difficult season. We can just worship Jesus. But the second thing David does is he says, actually, I'm not just going to worship you, God. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you. I'm not just going to do this once. I'm going to stand before you. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you. So he says this, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. When we find ourselves in a dark valley, sometimes it's like a gradual process for us. So maybe you, as I said earlier on, maybe you're in that kind of season and it's been a long one. And maybe you found yourself there over a long period of time. You know, maybe it was like autumn into winter. The leaves started falling off the trees in your life. And all of a sudden you realize you looked around and you go, gosh, this is dark. This is not where I want it to be. Or maybe you're not in that kind of gradual decline in life. Maybe you're in a crisis season. A wise friend said to me recently that every year we'll hit two crises in our lives. One will be one that happens to you directly and one will be to somebody you love. If I look back on my life, I think that's probably about right. Some years you get more and some years you get less. Whether you are in that crisis moment or you're in a trial, we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I mean, I mean it's, it's throughout the New Testament. Colossians 3, we, we fix our eyes on him who is seated in, 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 in the heavens above rather than on earthly things. Or Hebrews 12, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But you know, more than just keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we can actually do something more than that. We can cling on to him. We're invited to cling on to Jesus. See, he not only invites us to follow him, which he does in, in Luke 14. He says, come follow me. We're not only invited to walk with him like he does on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. He walks with them, doesn't he? We're actually invited to reach out and take hold of Jesus. You'll know this story. This is from Matthew. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. They said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And so then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught hold of him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? When we fear... When we doubt, when we hit darkness, when we hit a moment that everything just seems to be lost around us and we think we are sinking in the waves of life, Jesus reaches out for us and he invites us to take hold of him. It's not just that we get to keep our eyes fixed on him, we get to hold on to him. Martin Luther, the reformer, voices the, the, the voice of Jesus and he says this, Whatever good thing you lack, look to me for it and seek it from me. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress... Crawl to me and cling to me. I myself will give you what you need and help you out of every danger. 
Jesus isn't the only isn't the, only the one that we look to at times of difficulty, but the one we can take hold of. So we find David adopting this posture of worship, fixing his gaze on God, but he also does one more thing as well. He reminds himself of his inheritance in God. He says this, verse 6, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So he's, he's kind of reminding us of when the Israelites walk into the promised land, God allots them different places to live in. He says, the boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places in my life. You've given me a delightful inheritance. And then he goes on to elaborate that. And his inheritance is actually the same as ours. Let's read this. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you did not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. So he's saying, look, in the season that I'm in, God, you're not going to leave me here. God, you're not going to leave me in darkness. God, you're going to bring me out of it. And he says, you make known to me the path of life. So I'm in this dark place, but God, you are making known to me a path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So David knew that one day he would no longer be in the season that he would be in, but in the very presence of God. Now that season, he's basically saying it could end with his whole life being like that. But he knows that one day he is going to be with God forevermore. You see, his eyes were not only fixed on God in the midst of his trial, in the midst of maybe a dark season that he was in, but on a God that he would be with forever. Yet also writing this, knowingly or unknowingly, um, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the, the, the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, um, they, they wrote things down not necessarily knowing what they were writing. This is that verses 10 to 12, I think. He's saying, he's saying basically that there's this, in the Old Testament, the prophets were writing stuff down. They didn't even know what they were getting at, but now it's been revealed in Jesus. And so this is what David's doing here. In the midst of writing these, down, these things down, he prophesies what Jesus is going to do. And interestingly, both Peter in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13 use these verses to describe Jesus coming back to life again. And they say this is not just about David walking through a trial. This was a prophetic word about Jesus coming back to life again. But why is this significant to us? Well, look, no matter what season that you find yourselves in now, even if it lasted for your whole life, you can know this truth that Jesus has won, that Jesus is winning right now, and that Jesus will win. You can live in that truth. No matter what season you're in, Jesus is winning. The object of your worship, the, the one that you choose to cling to in your difficult season, is not the loser, he is the winner. He's the one who overcomes. As he says in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. That basically means Jesus says there is going to be suffering. Some people say, God, why do you allow suffering? Jesus says there is going to be suffering. But what he says is this, take heart, I have overcome the world. If you're walking through a trial today, Jesus wants to tell you this morning to take heart. Jesus is not only going to bring an light in the midst of your darkness, I believe that, we're going to pray for you in a minute. He's not only come to set us free from darkness, as it says in Isaiah 61, but he's come to defeat darkness itself. One day there will be no more darkness. Why? Because the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. One day we will walk and there will be no more sickness, fear, death. There will be none of it. Because why? God will be in the midst of us. How do we know that Jesus has won? How can you be sure, Barney, that, that Jesus has come back to life? Well, well, look, if Jesus was not abandoned to the realm of dead, 
the dead. This is what the, the, the first apostle said. If Jesus was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, but rose again to new life, and they said, we saw it with our own eyes. We've got a promise, they say. That is now as sure and as certain as the sun rising this morning was, or it will rise tomorrow morning. The promise is, is that if Jesus has overcome death on the cross, rising again to new life, then the promise stands that he will overthrow death forever, not just for himself, but for all of us. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he's done this. In the season that you are in, everything is now different because Jesus has defeated death. Everything is different for you. You don't need to walk in the season that you're in, groping around for something in the midst of darkness. You have a light to hold on to. Jesus has defeated death. Now, this is not just something abstract that I want to share with you this morning. This is truth that you can hold on to in the midst of whatever season that you're in. You can walk through life knowing that Jesus has won, is winning, and will win. Perhaps you're here today, and this is like fingernail truth for you at the moment. You're holding on to this, but you're clinging on to it at the very edge of your nails. This is a moment this morning to take heart. Jesus is speaking to you today. You've come today. Maybe, just, maybe you just thought, I wasn't going to come, but now I'm here. You're listening to this. You're here today because God wanted you to be here to tell you this this morning, that you need to take heart. He has overcome. And you know, as we live into this, we can actually start to declare, like David does in verse 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I've got a delightful inheritance. Yeah, I'm walking through this trial, but I have a delightful inheritance awaiting me. So we're going to close by doing something together now. And, um, and it's going to be a bit of body ministry. What that means is you're going to pray for one another and you're going to take communion together. Because as we take communion together, what we're doing is we're remembering Jesus' death on the cross. And you know what? We, we could go, oh, this is such a sorrowful moment. Jesus died, and that is true. Our Saviour died on the cross. But at the moment he did that, Paul writes that he defeated the powers. So as we take communion together, we're actually celebrating the fact that Jesus has been victorious. And as we do that, we're sharing in his death and we're reminding ourselves of his resurrection. And so we're going to do that together in a moment. And so what I'm going to invite you to do is maybe in a group of three or four, maybe the people you've come with, if there's somebody who's new for the first time, walk them through this this morning. Um, this is a, a meal that we take as believers, by the way. Um, but we'd love to pray with you. And if you're going through that season that I've been spoken about this morning, you don't need to say a lot. Maybe in your group you can just say, does this apply to any of us? And you can say, it applies to me. And then we're just going to pray for that brother or sister in Jesus and just say, just ask them that they might encounter Jesus in the midst of where they're at. Okay? So let's pray. I'll pray as we finish and then we'll just go into this together. Lord, I just thank you that no matter what season that we're in, whether we're on the mountaintop and everything looks rosy and we can see the rainbow or whether we're in the deep, dark valley, Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can hold on to the truth of knowing that you are worthy of our worship. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can hold on to the truth of not only fixing our eyes on you, but Lord, we thank you that we can cling on to you. Jesus, I thank you that you invite us just to take hold of you. And Lord, I thank you that we know that we have an inheritance waiting for us that is far outweighs any, future, any sort of future suffering we might walk through, any suffering we're walking through at the moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because of your death and resurrection, you will not abandon us to the realm of the dead, but Lord, that you will rise us to life forevermore with you. Lord, we thank you that you have won. 
We thank you that you continue to win and we thank you that you will win. And so, Lord, today I pray, Lord God, for each one of us that whatever season we're walking through, that we might encounter your goodness. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who's just in that dark season. Lord, I pray that as I've been speaking this morning, Lord, that there might be hope rising in them. And so we ask you, Jesus, that you come and be with us now as we take communion together. Come and abide with your people the way that you said that you would. Lord, that we might know you here with us now. Amen. Amen. So, into small.